All right. It's time for children to come on up front, find a spot to sit. All right. Come on up, find a spot. More room over here. Good. Find a spot to sit. All right. Good to see everyone. So you probably noticed I have a little friend with me today, right? This is Mary Jo, right? And so she's with me here. So let me ask you a question as we start. Do you think Mary Jo is fully grown yet? No. No. Do you think her body is as big as it's going to get? Do you think her brain is fully developed yet? No. No. She has more growing and more developing to do, right? In fact, she doesn't even have kneecaps. Everyone find your kneecap. Where's your kneecap? Right here, right? She doesn't have kneecaps yet. Did you know that infants don't have kneecaps? They develop later. She doesn't have kneecaps. She doesn't even have a xiphoid process. Do you know what a xiphoid process is? You can ask my kids later. I teach them kind of some strange things sometimes. But she doesn't have one of that either. It's going to develop later. And you know what? Her vision isn't fully developed yet. Her eyes are still adjusting and her vision is being developed and her bones are still growing and her brain is still has lots more to learn, right? Now I'm going to ask Mary Jo's dad. He's here with us. He's right here, Mr. Touche, right? So he's here and you know what? He's a relatively mature adult, right? <laughs> right? So today, Mr. Uh, Pastor Jeremy is going to be preaching about the church and after Jesus died on the cross, he was raised to life again. He went up into heaven, right? And the church was in its infancy, like Mary Jo, in its beginning, right? In beginning stages. And we can think of the church in a similar way to we think of Mary Jo, just in the beginning of life, right? First starting out. And then we read throughout the New Testament, throughout the rest of the Bible, we see the church growing and maturing, so Mary Jo has a work, work to do on her kneecaps, right? And the church had to establish elders and pastors, right? Mary Jo's bones need to grow and get hard. And the church had to learn good doctrine. They had to learn good truth about God. And Mary Jo, her vision needs to be more defined, right? And the church had to learn how to worship God together, and Mary Jo's brain still needs to keep developing. And the early church, it had to learn how to live in right relationship with each other. And the Bible gives us some good direction for those things and many others. She's not quite happy. But here at Pine Grove, we don't want to be an infant church just beginning like Mary Jo is. We want to be a relatively mature church, right? Like Mary Jo's dad. And we want to keep learning and growing until we are all mature, until we are all, are all grown up in faith. And so Pastor Jeremy is going to be preaching this morning. You could be thinking about Mary Jo needing to grow and mature and how the church as well needs to be growing and maturing in faith and our devotion to God. So thanks for coming up, everybody. You can go back and have a seat. So the xiphoid process is a cartilaginous section at the lower end of the sternum, which is not attached to the ribs, and gradually ossifies during adult life. 
Thank you, Google. <laughs> All right, we are going to be in several different scriptures this morning, but we're going to start in um, Acts 2, 42 to 47, and then we'll be in 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16, if you want to put your two fingers, or put a finger in one and whatever, Acts 2, 42 to 47, in 1 Timothy 3, uh, 14 to 16. I was reading this morning in my devotions out of Second Kings, and towards the end of that book, you meet Manasseh, who is an evil king in Judah. He introduces all kinds of false worship and worship that is abhorrent to God and practices like putting their children through the fire, wicked man. And then his son, Ammon, followed in his footsteps, and then Ammon's son, Josiah, became king at a very young age and totally went back to the Lord and led great reform in, the, in Judah. He removed all of the false objects of worship, destroyed them all, executed all of the leaders of the false worship. He had great zeal for the Lord, but he led reform, and he did it over a period of years. He did it carefully but courageously. One of the things that the church needs to do is constantly being, be Josiah's. The reformers had a saying that the church needs to be reformed and always reforming. That is, the church will never arrive. It will always drift at certain points, and there is courage and faith needed for church, the church members and leaders to be constantly figuring out where we've drifted and burn it to the ground. Burn those places down. And reinstitute right worship of God. So Pine Grove wants to be the kind of church that is, is that. We want a bunch of Josiahs here who are patient, courageous, zealous leaders for the Lord. Um, constantly turning us back to true worship of God in Scripture. That's what this five-part series is for. Just painting for you some specific areas that we see as church leaders are in need of attention. Uh, our need of care, of reform. I've titled the series, Welcome to Pine Grove Community Church, not because we don't know who we are, but so that you can kind of be introduced to these areas, things that we value, things that we see need some growth in the Lord, um, and so that you're, you're just in it with us. So this is the fourth of five. We started with worship. We wanted to see our worship reformed and what we sing and how we sing and our orders of service, we want to see men grown to become leaders in the church and home and in the world, community. Uh, then we talked about young families last week, the need for us as a church to care for and train and discipline parents so they be raising their children in the fear and admission of the Lord. And today we're going to be talking about relationships, particularly in small groups, uh, fellowship with each other. All right, so let me read these passages. I'm going to read both of them. Uh, and then start with Pastor Jeff's analogy. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed together, and, all, and had all things in common. 
And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And now 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so, uh, to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory." Let's pray. Teach us even now, O God, by your Spirit to see our need for your help in hearing and keeping your word. We not only cry to you for help in this, uh, but need to learn our need to cry to you for help. Hear now, Heavenly Father, our voices. We ask you to give us life in your holy and eternal word. Amen. Starting back in Acts 2, doesn't that sound appealing, that description? What a delight. You have this excitement, this momentum, this sense of awe, love. I think this describes, if you want to relate it to uh, dating, when a boy and a girl first see each other and they have this period of dating or courting that's very exciting. Neither ever does anything wrong, ever. They're both the most beautiful human beings on the earth to each other, Ever, they use the word ever a lot. It's the best food they ever ate. It's the best date that's ever happened. Everything's so exciting. They'll do anything for each other. It's very, very exciting. Uh, but you, you and I know, well, so, so this is like that. Their relationship is in its infancy. It's very young. Frankly, it's not mature yet. And all, somebody who's been married for 30 years looks on that fondly, but knows that if they stay like that, uh, their relationship won't last. Their relationship needs to mature, it needs to grow, it needs to solidify, it needs to institutionalize in a sense. Uh, and so you can't act completely like that after 20 years of marriage, right? That kind of love which is wonderful and sweet, and some of it will still be there. But that's not how it is later on. You need to grow. Now, sometimes we read this, and, um, and, and sometimes you've been taught this, that these verses are what the church should be forever and ever. Amen. Right? That when the, the church is described here in its infancy, when it gets its start, when it's a brand new work, that that's what the church 2,000 years later should be looking back on and doing. We love the simplicity of it. There's no structure. There's no buildings. It's very simple. Uh, and the church in America in 2019 should look back and the church in 
Acts 2 and, and try to be that. But that's, it. that's not what this is for. This section of scripture isn't a recipe for us on how to do church in all places at all times. There are good principles here. Um, there are things that we can learn. There are attitudes here that we could take on. But this is the church being planted. The book of Acts is looking at how the church began in frontier places, in the wildernesses, where Christ had not been named. And, uh, and so sometimes we want to look longingly at the church in Acts and, and look at us and say, what's wrong with us? Why all the order? Why all the fuss over bylaws? Why the need for elders and deacons? Can't we just be simple? Can't, can't we just be simple? But that is, frankly, a rather naive and idealistic impetus. It could even, in its worst, be just anti-authoritarian. That kind of longing for the good old days of Acts 2. One of the things we need to understand about the New Testament is, as we read about the book in Acts, again, of which there's much to learn from, one of the things we have to realize is that as the church grows and matures, we see later on in epistles that the uh, apostles are beginning to instruct the church on how to grow up. How to move from dating and the first year of marriage to putting things in place to help a marriage thrive and survive into maturity. As the church has infancy, they start having kids. How can the church take care of all of its kids? And when the kids grow up and start having grandchildren, how can the church lead and love and mature these people? And that's what the rest of the New Testament is doing. The rest of the New Testament, for lack of a better word, is teaching the church how to institutionalize. Isn't that a dirty word? That sounds stodgy. Bunch of old white-haired men sitting in board meetings with their arms crossed and no joy on their face, figuring out how they could take all the joy in life out of the church. That's not what they're doing. They're, they're looking at the church in its infancy. They know that the apostles are going to die one day, and they're figuring out how they can put processes into place, how they can put order in the church into place, how they can pass on leadership, hierarchical leadership, institutionalizing the church so the church can flourish into the second and third and fourth and fifth and fiftieth generations. That's what we see in 1 Timothy 3, if you want to turn there. Paul writes this letter, 1 Timothy, and we could also include 2 Timothy and Titus. We call them the pastoral epistles. He's writing these letters so that you might know how to do church. How are we, after the time of the apostles, after the beautiful, glorious courtship and first year of marriage of the early church, how can we move past our infancy into maturity? I'm writing this so you might know, so, so that you, um, one ought, how you might know how you ought to behave in the household of God. And what is the church? the place of God's truth. It's the defender, the protector, the herald, the, the biller and buttress of the truth. 
And what they want to do is preserve the church by putting good structure in place in the church so that the saints can be built up in the truth and the world can be changed by it. So if you read these pastoral epistles of 1st, 2nd Timothy, you read a lot of stuff about structure. What should elders be like and what should they do? What should deacons be like and what should they do? How should men relate to women in the church? How should women relate to women in the church? Titus 2. How should the church, what structure should the church put in place to take care of those who need care? Widows without husbands or family, orphans. What hierarchical organizational flow charts do we need in order to take care of widows in the church? What do we do about false teachers in the church? How do we dis- uh, discipline malcontent grumblers and divisive people in the church? They're trying to teach the church how to grow up. They're moving past Acts 2 into maturity. How should the church act? Right? Because that's what has to happen. That's what has to happen or it dies. You have to act your age. You know when you see a 60-year-old man, if he's acting like it's 10, it's disgusting. (laughs) Or if sometimes you see a young child who's acting like a very grown-up adult, it's cute, but you still want him to be a kid. The church has to act its age. The church has to act its age. And so, how does it do that? How does Pine Grove act its age? We're not a frontier church. We're not a new church plant. We're a growing, maturing church. You have a pastor who's come, he's into his fourth year. We want the 300 or so people that Paul called Pine Grove home to be growing and maturing in the Lord. I hope it happens. What are we going to do? We're just going to hope it happens? It's going to kind of sit by and pray and sing a few songs and hope that we become more like Jesus? What are we going to do? That's what these sermons have been about. One of the things that we want to do is put in place some simple structures that you can take advantage of to put yourself in the best position to become more like Jesus. One of those is Sunday morning. It is throughout the history of the church that God's people gather regularly on the day that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, a Sunday, to hear God's word in the praying, to hear God's word in the singing, and to hear God's word in the preaching or to be changed and disciplined by it. We're going to talk about that specifically next week especially preaching. So Sunday morning is the main place that God has instituted for the good order of the church in order to have you come and become more like Jesus. That's what this is for. You come here on Sunday morning and become more like Jesus. So that's one thing. But as you can see, we're large in number here. Somebody counted. Ryan, how many people are here today? Okay, 250 people here. One of the things that can happen when there's 250 people is you can remain very anonymous. Your marriage could be falling apart, but you can come here on Sunday morning and both you and your wife put a happy face on, maybe threatening each other, 
And the, the 248 other people have no idea that your marriage is this close to imploding because you're anonymous. Because you can smile and nod for an hour and a half. Because nobody here is going to look you in the eyes and take you in private and say, how's your marriage? You loving your wife? You submitting to your husband? We don't do that very well on Sunday morning. It's too big. And so we as elders, and this has been done for time on end, we, we need to create smaller churches within the larger church. Now, God has instituted that in families. We talked about that last week. One of the things families should be doing is worshiping together. Parents should be disciplining their child, children raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So family should be a place of that. But what we want to do is break up the church into smaller segments to meet regularly under the care of the elders for your growth in Jesus Christ. We're calling those neighborhood small groups. So if you could get this into your brain, we, we were asking for commitment uh, from you in two ways. One Sunday morning, two small groups. Those are the main things we want you to attend for the sake of your maturation in Jesus Christ. Okay, so that, that's the goal. We want to bring the gospel, the word of God to bear, on your lives in very personal, private ways in these small groups overseen by an elder so that you can become more like Jesus. All right, so let me talk about a few things. We're going to go to two other texts here. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 12 and then the book of Philemon. Uh, first, 1 Corinthians 12, rather quickly. When the Bible is describing the church, it often uses metaphors. It uses something that you know in nature very well, something that you know inside and out to help you understand what the church is. And those metaphors are various. Sometimes you're called the body of Christ. That's what we'll see here. Sometimes the family. Sometimes a building. Sometimes you're referred to as Christ's field. But in 1 Corinthians 12, especially beginning at verse 12, we see the uh, analogy of the body. For just as the body, so he's talking about your human body. I'm assuming you have one of those. This isn't foreign to you. Got it? So you have a body. Just as you have one body, right? You don't, you're not like three bodies in one. You have one body, but you have lots of parts. Many members. You have xiphoid processes. <laughs> I never thought, thought I'd say that from the pulpit. Um, you have fingers and fingernails and navels and ears and all of the parts. So it is with Christ. So it is with Christ's body is the analogy. So just like you have a body, one body that has lots of parts, lots of members, so it is with the body. For the body in verse 14 does not consist of one member but of many. Okay, so that's the church. We're one and we're many. Now, I want to apply that quickly to church membership. There is nowhere in the Bible that you'll see teaching on how to become a church member or church memberships. But it's implied here in this metaphor, isn't it? In fact, he uses the word. And one of the things happening in the American church today is it, because we're so anti-authority 
because we hate authority. Please understand this. You and I hate authority. It is born and bred into us as Americans and especially born and bred into us as Americans in our day. We hate authority. The reason that we have feminism today is because it's a rejection of God the Father's authority. We hate the authority of men. We hate the authority of police officers. We hate the authority of teachers. Just look at your school districts. They hate authority. We hate authority. We hate it. We despise it. You hate it. Okay? You, you, you got to know that about you. You despise it. And, and one of the ways that's leaking into the church is by undermining and despising church membership. We don't want to submit in any tangible way, and so we remove any kind of church membership. But here we have many members of one body. Membership is just a simply an orderly way for us to identify who we as elders are supposed to take care of and who you as members have responsibility for. We need some kind of process to do that, right? What would your workplace be like if anybody was allowed to show up and do the work? Right? You have a process to identify who is allowed behind the desk and who isn't. Who is an employee and who is um, a client. Who, right? That's what we do here. We, we got to know. So we have a simple process of church membership. But the important part here is we're all one, and each of us as individuals are absolutely vital. And we want to know you. We want to know you in all, of, all the parts here. The analogy here is that no one part can say to another, you're not important. There are parts in your body that seem less important, but you know that even if your big toe gets stubbed, the whole body hurts. Every part is important. It needs to be known and cared for, needed here. And no part can say to themselves, you can't say to yourself, I'm not important here. I'm not needed here. You can't discipline yourself out of the church because you think you're not important. That means we need to know the parts. And, and you need to know the parts in smaller, more significant, meaningful ways. We need to figure out a way to break you up into smaller groups so that the parts can get to know each other and care for each other. And know where the parts are hurting. Know where the parts are succeeding. Know what the parts are useful for and how they can be better used. That's the reason for small groups. Right, so that's 1 Corinthians. Now turn over to the book of Philemon. This is a rather obscure book. Right, why am I having you turn there? Um, if you're struggling to find it as I just did, it's before Hebrews. <laughs> First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, uh, Philemon. It's a very small book, and it gets down to this issue of fellowship. The term fellowship is used in the book frequently. One of the reasons that we want to do these small groups is for the issue of relationships. And so as we put together these neighborhood small groups, there's two big goals with them. One is so that the elders can know a smaller segment of our church and provide excellent pastoral elder care. To say it more crassly, we want to get into your lives. Okay? We want to be intrusive. 
It might sound bad, but we really want to know you. We want to know what makes you happy. We want to know what makes you sad. We want to know where you're sinning and where you're not. We want to know you because we want to care for you. The other is so that you can know each other. Fellowship. Relationship. So you can't hide here. So that even introverts who really only want one or two friends ever in their life and, and like... Uh, they're waking 16 hours, they like 15 and a half of those hours to be isolated from any other contact of human beings, which is great and fine, but we want to figure out how those kind of folks can even there find very deep, meaningful relationships that are small in number. We want you to be known here. We want you to have an impact on each other's lives. That gets to this issue of fellowship. There are three main people in this book of, of Philemon. There's Paul who writes the letter. He's the apostle. There's Philemon, a wealthy Christian who's a leader in his church. The church meets at his home, which means he's wealthy. His house is big. He's got servants. He's got slaves. And he's well thought of in the church. He's probably an elder or pastor, a leader in this church. That's Philemon. And he owns slaves. He's a slave owner. And then you have Onesimus, who is a runaway slave who stole something from Philemon, ran away. The story is really wonderful. Paul had led Philemon, the wealthy slave owner whose church met in his house, to Christ. Paul led Philemon, er, uh, Philemon to Christ, built him up in the Lord. He's now a church leader because of Paul. Onesimus is Philemon's slave, stole something of wealth and importance from Philemon, ran away. He's a runaway slave. Paul is in prison, and it seems like Onesimus seeks Paul out. Maybe he's feeling guilty. <laughs> don't know. We don't have the backstory. But he seeks Paul out in prison, meets with Paul. God saves him. And Paul is writing this letter to Philemon saying, Onesimus is now your brother in the Lord. I'm returning him to you as your slave and whatever he stole. And what Paul hopes to do is have Philemon free Onesimus because Paul sees Onesimus could be useful to him in the ministry. Wonderful. 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 Now, a few tidbits. Slavery in the Roman world was awful. Way worse than the slavery we had here in the States. No rights, no way out, no justice. And Paul sends Onesimus back into it. Striking. And it looks like Philemon did grant Onesimus his freedom, otherwise he wouldn't have this letter in the New Testament. Obviously, Philemon had this letter from Paul and he allowed it to be spread aloud and it ended up in the Christian canon because he submitted to Paul's wishes. Now, what does this have to do with us in small groups? The term fellowship is key to Paul's in this letter. Now, in our day, we mean fe- when we say fellowship, we typically mean the 15 minutes before the service when we chat about the week and the half hour to hour after the service when we chat. Right? You have coffee and some chat time and that's fellowship. That's a kind of a part of fellowship, but that's really not what the Bible means by fellowship. 
the term in the Bible means identity. It means identification with someone. It means unity and oneness with people. It means an utter commitment to somebody else. Okay, fellowship in the Bible is way more than friendly talking over coffee. If donuts are included, it's a little bit more like biblical fellowship, but not quite there. All right, so here's Onesimus, a runaway slave who is stolen, who is legally worthy of the death penalty in their day. Paul sends him back to Philemon. And at the root, at the core of Paul's plea with Philemon to grant, to forgive Onesimus, to grant Onesimus his freedom, is this word koinonia, fellowship. What Paul is saying is to two people who couldn't be any different in the world. One is wealthy, educated, church leader. Another is a slave, a thief, worthy of the death penalty. And what Paul is saying they're, they're the same. Based on their common identity in Christ, based on Philemon looking at Onesimus now as a brother in the Lord, one with him, based on Onesimus seeing Philemon as a brother in the Lord, based on this common indwelling brothership in Christ, Philemon, forgive him. Philemon, please set him free. Philemon, I, Paul, am your father in the Lord. Onesimus is my son in the Lord. You have this common koinonia fellowship with each other, even though you couldn't be any more different in the eyes of the world, even though the two of you would never join a small group together. You're one in Christ. You're the same in Christ. What does that have to do with our small groups? We want you to join together with people that are very different than you. Because you have this common unity, fellowship, commitment to each other in the Lord. We want to organize these groups geographically so that we don't end up with 20-something new parents all in one group. And then 65-year-old empty nesters in another group. And then a whole bunch of single gals in another group. We want to mix you up like master and slaves in a group with people who are very different than you because you have a common identity in Christ and because you need each other for each other's growth in Christ. Because people who are different from each other help each other to grow. People who are the same from each other have the same blind spots. Can't see where they're failing. Can't help each other and often just flatter each other. We want these groups to be hard work in some ways. Because we're one in Christ. We're one in Christ. So how am I tying this all together? We long for the simplicity and excitement of Acts 2, but we live in 1 Timothy 3 of a mature church needing to put orderly, orderly kind of things in place in order to help become more like Jesus, small groups. And we want to order these small groups hierarchically. There are going to be elders in there with real authority and real loving care for you who want to pastor you. And we want these groups to be mixed up of 
men and women, young and old, all seasons of life, all socioeconomic categories, all coming together, common identity in Christ, submitting to their elders so they become more like Jesus and, and change this world. That's what they're for. Isn't that wonderful? It's going to be hard work. It's going to be hard work. But what are they for? Let me ask you that. Mandy didn't uh, make me ask me to watch a video that I think Becca sent her by an author named N.D. Wilson, which I'd encourage you, especially if you're a younger person, to read all of his books. He's, he's wonderful. He was giving a talk at a conference, um, and he was talking about what you heard me say in our time of confession. What are we for? You should know, right? What shows up here on Sunday morning is often what I've read or seen in the past week. I'm, I'm not that creative. Um, just like teachers, the best teachers are the best thieves. Applies to pastoring too. Um, you just think I'm that smart. Um, anyways, he was saying, "What are you for? We're f- for God's glory." And he, he used the analogy of a football huddle. Sorry if you're not a sports person, but I think you under you know what the word huddle means. Kind of. Yeah. So during a football game. After a play is run, the, the 12 people on offense will come together in a little group, circle. What did I say? 12, 11? Just making sure you're paying attention. Uh, and they'll call the next play. So the, the reason that they come together in a huddle is to get orderly and to get ready for the next. And they don't just stay in the huddle perpetually. The point of the game isn't the huddle. The point of the game isn't to stay in the huddle and tell each other how each other good is doing and what they could work on the next time and just stay perpetually in the huddle. The point of the huddle is to break the huddle and go out and kick the tail of the next team. It's to fight. It's to win. Okay, if you think of small groups, they're like a huddle. They're a time, we're going to do these every other week, for you to gather together and find some safety and some security and some care and maybe some correction for the sake of getting out there and kicking some tail. Right? For the sake of going out to your workplace in the next week and living for Christ in ways that you didn't do before. For the sake of going and not falling into the same sin that you did before because you had a good huddle. For the sake of living in your marriage in a more God-honoring way because you were able to come together and get some help and care and correction from the huddle. So small groups like Sunday morning for us to come together to be taught, to be loved, to be encouraged, to be corrected, to be built up, to be challenged, so that we can get out there in this world and be of some use. To make this place different for the glory of God. To take risks. To slam our bodies like a running back into the linebacker's body, feeling the pain because you like it. Because you want to dent this world. Because you want to be dangerous to the world. That's what these small groups are for. We're not trying to make safe Christians here. That's the problem today. The problem with Christians today is that they're too safe. They're too kind. They're too nice. When an Equality Act is passing the House of Representatives, we don't say anything. 
even though it's blatantly trying to destroy Christians. When little babies are being chopped to bits in abortuaries around our state, we won't say anything. We won't call it murder. So that's what these are for. Times for you to come together and receive excellent pastoral care and be, build meaningful, deep relationships that you can be of use to God in this world. That's what this is for. The point isn't the small group. You won't be successful by just going to a small group. The point isn't just for you to get to a small group. Okay? The point is for you to attend a small group with the aim of becoming more like Jesus, submitting to the elders, helping other people become more like Jesus so that you can be more effective in this world for Christ. That's the point. So you can finally, at your workplace, speak up and say what needs to be said courageously because you got a small group of people who got your back. All right. All right, a couple other things. We want these small groups to be fun. We, we want them to be enjoyable. We want you to come there every other week, eat a meal together, get to know each other. And so we want food to be a part of them. I, I think food, eating around a table with other people is some of the best ways to get to know other people. For whatever reason, when you have a fork in your hand and food on the end of the fork, you start talking about things that you don't ever talk about. And so we want these to be very enjoyable in that way. We want you to want to come to them, not have to come to them. Want to be a place where you are being known and getting to know people, and so you feel like you're, you're becoming a meaningful part of this body. Or then you come on Sunday morning and, and you have people to talk to in meaningful ways. We're doing them in the neighborhoods, as I said, to organize them in such a way that they are diverse, but also we're doing it in the neighborhoods every other week so that on the off weeks, a couple of times a year, you as a neighborhood small group can figure out ways to reach out to your neighborhood. Where you can say, hey, this fall, we're going to have a fall cleanup for our neighborhood. We're going to contact some of our elderly neighbors, figure out how to serve them. Or we've got a lot of young families in our neighborhood and around the Christmas time, we're going to have all the parents drop off the kids so they can go do their Christmas shopping or we're going to have a block party or we're going to have a Super Bowl party or whatever you're going to do. I want you to figure out a couple times a year on those off weeks where you can do evangelistic sort of things. So if, again, you're asking, what's the evangelism strategy at Pine Grove? This is the biggest one. Sunday morning is big. Hospitality, inviting people in your home is big. But this is, wants to become the, one of our bigger ones. You in your neighborhood should know your neighbors better than anybody. And how can you as a neighborhood small group plan on a few times a year to do something to reach out to them? Maybe to invite them in. That's what we want you to do. Maybe it's a game night. Maybe it's a cartoon up night. Maybe it's a ladies tea. Maybe it's men getting all their guns and going shooting together. Uh, I don't know. That's what you get to figure out together. Um, I think that's it. So uh, the next step in starting these groups are in your bulletin, this uh, neighborhood gatherings. Now,
Somehow it got changed. Group 2 McNaughton. Their name is not McNaughton. It's Spider. We're naming it after the kind of the bigger lakes in each area. So you're Spider Lake. Um, you can see here the different groups organized geographically. The elder who is kind of overseeing the group and the location of this gathering and what's going to be happening there. You can see the dates. Uh, Mike, Jules, Crescent Group is June 15th. Everybody else is June 23rd. Um, and so check that out. Please join in with those. Again, we want these to be a, I get to do this. I actually want to do this. Not I have to do this. One other thing on this. We are still going to keep our Wednesday evening ministry, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday evening. Awana, our children's ministry, which met on Tuesday evening, is moving to Wednesday evening. We're combining those in the same evening. We've got a big building now. We want to enjoy that. And then on a month, once a month basis, on those Wednesday evening, we'll have a whole church meal. Okay? So once a month, Wednesday evening, Renee Jules running the meal part. Uh, we're going to gather for Awana. will be Awana. Youth group will be Awana. We're not changing the programming. We're just combining it on the same night in order to free up a night, in order to have some kind of momentum. We're all together here, a meal once a month. We, we're talking about offering an adult elective maybe. And we're talking about Sunday school and things like that. More to come on those things. But that, we're doing that so that if you can form your mind around this, Sunday morning, I got a small group, a neighborhood small group every other week or so, and then Wednesday night for my kids. Wednesday night. We want those to be good, robust, helpful to you as a parent uh, in your parenting of your children, Awana and, and uh, youth group. Okay, so be praying for that. There'll be lots of serving opportunities coming up. I want to say any questions. This felt like a lecture. I'm not going to ask for any questions. Um, let's just pray. Let's pray. Well, Father, pray your blessing on these things. Uh, we can, uh, in our own efforts, do all these things, but we need you to bless them. Man plans his, ste- uh, plans his ways, but the, you ordain steps. And so, God, may your blessing be upon this. We don't we don't want to build this on our own strength and do it in vain. We want you to be the builder of these things. And so bless them. Bless our people with attitudes of eagerness towards this. I think these are going to be a blast and fun. And so God bless us in that way. I pray that these groups would form well and be really useful. And so God, please use them to help us become more like your son. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.